Welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, go to PCAPaintEd.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all you non-members out there, sign up for a free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the Apple Store and Google Play. This episode is brought to you by Estimate Rocket, Angie, and APC. Welcome to the Painter Marketing Mastermind Podcast, a show created to help painting company owners build a thriving painting business that does well over $1 million in annual revenue. I'm your host, Brandon Pierpont, founder of Painter Marketing Pros and creator of the popular PCA educational series, Learn, Do, Grow, Marketing for Painters. In each episode, I'll be sharing proven tips, strategies, and processes from leading experts in the industry on how they found success in their painting business. We will be interviewing owners of the most successful painting companies in North America and learning from their experiences. On this episode of the Painter Marketing Mastermind podcast, we host guest Brian Reese. Brian is the founder and owner of Bella's Army Painting, a residential painting company based in Pittsburgh that does over $1.5 million in annual revenue. In this episode, Brian discusses how his sales first mindset has allowed him to effectively outrun other problems in his business and a shift he is taking this year to right-size and improve operations. This is Brian's second time on the Painter Marketing Mastermind podcast, and he takes an even deeper dive into why his sales process is so effective and how other painting company owners can implement a similar process in their business. Brian explains how he is constantly pushing himself and his team members outside of their comfort zones and the benefits as well as mental challenges of this constant iterative improvement. If you want to learn more about the topics we discussed in this podcast and how you can use them to grow your painting business, visit paintermarketingpros.com forward slash podcast for free training, as well as the ability to schedule a personalized strategy session for your painting company. Again, that URL is paintermarketingpros.com forward slash podcast. Brian, thank you for coming on the Painter Market Mastermind podcast for the second time, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Yeah, so you were guest number two, numero dos for us. So this is uh, this is a big throwback, man. Awesome, man. Yeah, yeah. Your uh, podcast has uh, come a long way, a lot, like pretty quickly. Oh. I'd say. Thanks, man. Yeah the uh, the PCA um, yeah the PCA has been doing a good job just promoting their podcast in general. So mm-hmm. that's been been good. But you and I were talking before we started recording. And you were telling me how everything is roses and perfect for you. Talk to me about that. <laughs> well, well, it's so like, here's my perspective on the whole thing. So, so like what I was trying to say was um, everything is, it seems like it's always perfect and like things are going great and like you're doing awesome. Um, like we're just with conversations you have with people online and stuff like that. But um, it looks from the outside like, in, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like the Facebook, like, everybody's smiling all the time. You know, everyone's life is perfect except your own. You're the only one who's sad or has family issues or anything like that. <laughs> exactly. And it's, it's interesting. Cause like the same struggles you go through going from like zero to like half a million in revenue or like whatever that would be, you go through the same uh, similar life cycle, no matter like what 
layer you're at in your cycle point in your business. There's just a different like animal every single time. And it's, um, it's an interesting perspective at the least. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess let's kind of dive into that because you, you have, uh, achieved a solid level of success. Your, your first podcast episode was really focused on the sales first mentality. Um, and then it, it seems like now you've kind of shifted the focus a little bit and, and you kind of have to always, I guess, balance that sales versus operations. And if one leads, the other needs to catch up. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So, um, again, like at the base point of starting a company, you have to lean into what you're good at usually. So we were good at just selling the jobs and getting the work. So, um, we would usually just outsell other problems. And that's just like that influx of like being really good with this volume of lead flow and workflow usually outpaced and masked some other problems that like were in the actual company. Um, for example, like just not like optimizing certain GP points or like if you don't have an actual like SOP and process for like producing something and it's not replicated across the board, how does that long-term affect your culture? Um, it's just, there, there's a really deep layer <laughs> to certain aspects of the people part of this. And um, that's where we're at now. Like we, we like are doing a hardcore focus on that and just like kind of like re learning and adjusting and just like making sure that everybody on the, on the company board is on the same page and it's just uncomfortable, which we get as owners. And like, that is part of the process and journey. But whenever you have 10, 15 people on staff and it's uncomfortable, sometimes it's, it's a lot of like conversations and work with the people and just making sure that they're okay with that for the next couple months or something like that. And some people aren't, which is, it's okay, I guess. Yeah. Well, well I've always um, found that the more people you have on staff, the easier changes uh, for everybody. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, so you, I want to dive into this because this is a, a really, really interesting point and not something I don't think that I've really covered in depth in any other podcast episode. So you guys, you guys led with sales you were able to basically outsell your other problems. And then now you and correct me if I'm wrong. Now you've consciously decided, Hey, um, we're going to not stop selling, but, but stop making that, that such the focal point. And we're going to kind of switch focus as a company to, to sort of right sizing or correcting some of the internal issues. And then maybe we'll go back to the focal point of sales. Is that where you're at? Um, Yes. So, so like how we kind of like got to where we are now, um, we figured out how to like optimize the sale process. So like we immediately hired out for that because it was usually like me as an owner consuming the entire like role on that. Um, so we hired for that, uh, had a person shadow us for like a month and then, uh, he's been taking over the majority of the lead flow. We have another part-time salesperson. And then I do a little bit here and there just as a safety net, but, um, my time allocation is more heavily on the operations and people and culture side now. So that once that's kind of like optimized, like that's why like the growth and volume is not like a huge influx right now. Like we chose to kind of like stay like at a certain points to just like, you know, spend more time to make sure that this one section here is actually not going to like blow up on us in like a year or two. If we start adding more people and layers to this organization. Sure. And now you guys are, are using employees or subcontractors? So well, we use both. 
we have um, uh, 10 employees in the field right now, operationally, a PM, a couple of sales consultants, and then uh, two trade partner teams that we work with. So it equates to like 15 people total. Okay. And then I guess a, a couple crews of, of subcontractors. Yeah. Yeah. That's what the trade partner was that I was referring to. Got it. And then you said it makes some people uncomfortable. So when you kind of shift the, the business focus, and I guess it sounds like when you shift the business focus, that's really you shifting your focus as the leader yeah. of the company. Uh, can you speak to that? You know, make them uncomfortable. What, what does that mean? And what happens? Yeah. So um, here's an example. Like we, so like, let's just say two and a half years ago, um, there was people within the organization that were a part of our team. Um, they stayed because like they liked our intent and the kind of people we were. And that says a lot whenever the operational like workflow wasn't like perfect. So through that life cycle and journey, uh, we got to the point where like, we're now putting attention and time on that. And it could be like a core value thing, or it could be like, just like, what's the cadence and just like standard and how we present ourselves and like, like all the SOPs change. And like, we just slowly start adding more detailed layers to things. And, um, it's a different operational, like way of life than what we were doing two years ago. So, you know, people that got really good and like into the routine with the different like operational mindset, um, sometimes it's tougher to change and they either just like work through that little hump and kind of like get to the other side, which we help them, you know, overcome that. Or they just stay kind of like stuck a little bit in their comfortability zone. Right. Yeah. The, um, people needing to change, especially sometimes for, for people who are not business owners, not kind of accustomed to having to be so adaptable. They, they want a job and they're good at that job. That's not always their strong suit. Yeah. Like what I've realized is like certain team members, they, they, they want to have like a really structured and optimized environment and for things to be going great and like for you to be there and like all that. And like, it's, certain things, whenever you're just being pulled in different directions, um, you just have to say, just have the faith, lean in, wait four months. Trust me, we'll get there. Yeah. Brian, is that, is that a pain marketing pros hat behind you on, on top uh, of your, uh, here? Yeah. 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 I was looking at that. I was like, man, it looks really similar <laughs> to our hats. Uh, and that's then I remember that, I'd tell you what, that's cool. <laughs> um, yeah. so, so these, that makes sense. So you, you, you know, you, you kind of disrupt people's routine um, as you improve the processes. And it's kind of similar to, I guess, in a way to the episode that we have with Zach Osherman, where he talked about um, succession planning. And when you improve a culture, you disrupt people. And even if it's for the best, some people don't want to be disrupted. And, and that can be, that can cause conflict. What are some of the, I guess, the major SOP changes that you guys have, have been making? So like, obviously just like operational like workflows for like each surface and each like thing that we do. Um, that's obviously different. Cause like we never had like a specific process for doing certain things, even though we did a little bit, but not really. Um, I think the biggest thing with that is just like whenever like production was never my strong suit, for example, it was always a sales game. So like the confidence level of oper operational confidence is what we've been calling it. It wasn't a hundred percent. And it was tough to have like the conviction and just like the confidence and just like, uh, you know, the basically 
you don't have the ability to like articulate like, Hey, this is how we do stuff. This is like what we're about. Um, we know for a fact that this is like an optimized way to do it. Just trust our process. That was never there. Then we added the SAP layer. Cause like we kind of like converse with the entire staff and with the data. So we knew that, Hey, we have a solid reference point now. Now we're going to be more, be more serious and lean into this. So a lot of that's been going on is just like the confidence level is a lot higher. Um, which we're able to kind of just like talk, talk with more conviction and just like be more consistent, I guess. Yeah. Cause the inconsistencies is where the trust kind of like goes down a little bit. Sure. That, that's part of the game. It is not. It's, it's a great point. You know, if you, if you demonstrate, <clears throat> I think, uh, I think the term would be cognitive dissonance, but if you, if you have a strong sales game, but it looks like you don't entirely know what you're doing or, or, are not as well versed in the actual fulfillment as some other companies, then you can, you can basically create a cognitive dissonance in the mind of the, the, the potential customer. And that causes them to not trust you. Uh, Cause yep. you look strong exactly. in one element and then you, you look like you're not as strong um, in what they would really want you to be strong. in. so my question to you then, cause that's really interesting. A lot of painting company owners, especially ones that I speak with are so confident in their uh, fulfillment you know, they say, Oh, we're, you know, we're, everyone's the best. So obviously that's not true, but everyone thinks that, that, that they are the best painting company uh, in town, but they struggle kind of demonstrating that or, or closing, or they get underbid by, you know, the guys who aren't as good as them or whatever. How do you, or, or how did you sell? How did you have such a strong sales game when you weren't quite as confident and you openly acknowledge that, which I applaud, you know, I think a lot of people lack confidence in a lot of ways and they try to hide it. Um, but you realize, Hey, there's some room for improvement here. So you're kind of having that in the back of your mind. How'd you still sell so strongly? So I guess that was just how I was taught to do it. Um, like I, I got, I, like whenever I first learned to sell, I initially got, um, just thrown into it and saying like, Hey, just like, this is like what a face board is. This is what siding is. Just, we spray it, just trust us. We do it this way. Then you don't, then you roll it if you have to do that. Like, it, it was like blindly confidence in terms of like just what I was being like relayed. And we had to sell work without having any people employed yet. <laughs> so we sold <laughs> with complete blind faith. And like, I think like that kind of carried over to that because no matter what goes on in the back end, like we have the ability to put our blinders on and say like, at the end of the day, like we, we don't say this to our customers, but like sure. thinking in the back of our heads, no matter what goes wrong here, if something does go south, if we don't know what we're doing, we're not going to leave these people hanging. So like right. we can sell with the conviction that like this generally is the best option for them with the perspective of like, they're not going to like be in a really weird heated situation ever, no matter what. Yeah. So you, you're basically selling, knowing that you might be a little outside your comfort zone or maybe, Hey, I, I need to figure out how I'm actually going to fill this job once I sell it in the beginning. Um, but also knowing your values and the value system of your company and that uh, it's going to be okay because you're going to make sure it's okay. So you don't have to feel unethical um, or like, you know, I guess to be crude, like you're, you're potentially screwing these people because that's not going to happen. Right. And um, honestly, I, I think another factor of that too is um, uh, the SOP for like production standards and production rates. I, I kind of memorized that and knew that from the place I came from. So that alone made it a little bit more easier to have like a reference point of like, Hey, like I know this works at a national level. It's going to work here sure. with some variance at the very least. 
And where were you working previously? That was with College Works Painting. College Works Painting, and you were you were doing sales for them. Yes. Okay. Nice. Okay. Great, man. So yeah, that is, um, it's an interesting journey, you know, kind of hearing about because last time you came on was a, was a ways back and, and now hearing about your progression. Um, how are you, how are you going about building those SOPs? Are, are you just, I mean, are you, are you going through some sort of structured course? Or are you just looking back at, at things that went wrong and, and fixing them retroactively? What's your process? So I would say it's a little bit of both. So like retroactively going back and just like analyzing stuff uh, at an ownership level, we have done that a lot. And it's just been a combination and mixture of just everything. So like whenever we don't know something, we openly just ask people, we talk to people, um, a lot of like DM conversations, um, people would share their documents. We would kind of get information and ideas. And then uh, once we feel like, felt like we had enough ideas and just like perspectives to kind of like, you know, mold into like what we think we want to do. We just converse with our entire team and said that, Hey, like, we think that this is right. Like, what do you think the process is? Let's go through it. And then once I talked with like individual people, talked as a whole team and unit and said, like, how does this look? Any more tweaks and adjustments that you want to make? I want to make sure we're all in agreement that this is how we're going to do stuff from here on out. So you loop the entire team in to the process. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And do you have, I know a couple of things you said that you're, you're working on is the increasing the gross profit, probably making, making that more consistent of your jobs. So I'd love to hear kind of what your target is there and, and how you've worked on that. And then um, standardizing your fulfillment and your SOPs. How are you thinking about that in terms of priority? So to kind of like, pinpoint your question you're to like just read it it's kind of all over the place yeah let's start with yeah. uh let's start with gross profit so you're what are you trying to get to and how are you trying to get there <laughs> so this comes back to the sales confidence so like for the longest time we were figuring out like how do we produce this the same time or the same way every single time which with consistent like gp and uh for some reason there was always just an inconsistency somewhere so after looking at the data, we realized with how many hours we were actually like logging as a company versus like what was actually like uh, budgeted for jobs that we can actually produce and do output with. There was a little gap there, meaning like if we only had like 1100 hours allocated for possible production from jobs that we produced, we might've actually logged 1400. Mm, wow. So like there was like a huge unbillable gap usually. Um, so we kind of just chose to cluster that together and then whatever that percentage is what percentage was, it was like 22.15%. We just increased our price. <laughs> so that was <laughs> a really easy way that we did that for. Um, and again, that's kind of like what my conversation was with you before this uh, on, um, we're experimenting with how high we can go, what we can do, how to improve our sales game. Cause even though I, I had sales confidence, I know for a fact there's optimized or optimization points that we can still improve on in that category. And we've been converting, which is awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. So you, so yeah, there are a couple of ways to increase gross profit inc increase your uh, price. And so you have a higher top line revenue uh, or you can increase your efficiency. So you have a lower uh, cost of good sale or cost of services sold. So 
you guys have really up until this point, I know you're focused on the operational efficiency, but it sounds like the first thing you did was, Hey, let's increase the price. And then we'll kind of circle back and maybe try to figure out um, what's going on. You know, try to get these, the, why is there 1400 hours, but, but we thought it was supposed to be 1100 hours. How are you, did you just say, all right, we're increasing at 22%. That was that you can just increase everything 22% or how did that go? Yeah. Um, it's <laughs> amazing, Brian. I love that. My goodness. Cause like at that point, I'm just like, you know what? Like, I think how, like how much of this is actually in my head and how much is actually real. So I, I wanted to test the theory on that and just be like, there's really no reason not to try it. Let's just see how it works. Sure. And, um, like a result from that, for example, uh, we figured out how to close and convert more at higher rates. Like we itemize everything, like perceptively looking at things at a smaller micro scale. Um, you know, instead of charging 65, we might be charging 96. So like, it's, I don't know, to, to me, it, it was, we had like so many decisions we could have like done with that. And we, it was more just us being kind of exhausted and tired from doing <laughs> operational fixes that we weren't really confident in. So go back to your sweet spot of selling. Yeah. And not that we're neglecting the operational thing. Like we're still like yeah. optimizing that, but, um, this is the easiest and quickest fix to do both. Um, and if conversions go from like 50 to like 38, so be it. We'll just increase later. Sure. sure. Had the, now have you noticed, I mean, how long have you been doing this? Have you noticed a change in the close rate? Yeah, dramatically. Um, if so, if we don't push, say, say we just go on the consult and uh, cause I, I, we've been doing this for like, I say two months, three months. Um, if you don't try and push and like ask for the sale intentionally, maybe 20%, 25% is what close rates are. And that's just p- through pure follow-up. Mm-hmm. If you close and you push and you improve your sales game and comfortability and like you train daily with that stuff, it pushes it from like 30 to 45. Okay. And then you're saying before you guys raised it, it was really around 50. Yeah, I, I would say mid forties actually. Um, but again, like our comfortability with sales was never to be like truly, I, I hate the word pushy, but like more sort of is, I guess the way I'd put it. So like we're, we're treating like we can close everything now and we're being very intentional and just like improving our game on a daily basis. Yeah. So, so a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, painting company owners are uncomfortable with, with selling, you know, for yeah. better or for worse. I think generally for worse, as long as you're fulfilling on it, uh, there's no, no problem selling. And one of the themes that I've found with a lot of our guests is they are really sales oriented and that's why they are where they are. Um, and the, this theme that, well, I actually run a sales company or sales and marketing company or a people company that does painting is a theme that's come up repetitively, but I want to dive into your tactics a little bit here just so people can understand. Cause otherwise we'll push you sell. Do you like force people say, Hey, you're going to sign right here. What do you, you say kind of training on it, um, you go in with the conviction, you're going to make the sale. What does the sales process actually look like? So it's, um, your typical pre-positioning post-positioning and like presentation stuff. Um, it's just like, incre- like increasing the amount of times we're giving them valuable information, I guess. Okay. Um, I, but I think the biggest point that we're, that we did to kind of like change the game on that is if we go into an interior house, yeah, we ask them questions directly that are like very, very direct actually in terms of like, the price points, like how they're looking to structure this. Is it one option? Is it like itemized option per room? We might spend another like 45 minutes at the house, but we can give them like 28 options of stuff. So like, 
like there, there's one person that I literally just gave them, like it was an itemization of every room, every closet was itemized. Um, the, uh, there's different paint products and like options and stuff like that. It's a lot more work, but like we built auto calc sheets to kind of spit out numbers pretty quickly, which that was an improvement. And, um, yeah, it might be a lot more like it might be a $27,000 job compared to like 14,000 compared to like a competitor, but like perspectively and psycho psychologically, I can get them and convince them to go with like a $1,500 option. You know, like if they're looking at a $1,500 price tag, if it's like an itemized option versus a $27,000 bill, they're okay. At kind of like justifying it to themselves that, Hey, this, this does make sense. I, I guess. Um, I think that like, it's just the itemization, I guess, it's kind of like the biggest breakdown on that. And we just increase the time we're actually spending at the house too. So we're intentionally just talking to them a lot more, being more direct and picking or being more selective to like peel the layers back while we're there. So being, being more selective and peeling the layers back, I guess dive into what that means. Like, like what, what, what would the um, line of questioning, how would the line of questioning change or how would that, how would that, I know I'm pushing you, Brian, but I know a lot of people are not really going to have any idea what, what you mean by that. Okay. So you're going to someone's house. Uh, you want you, your goal there should be to, to get what's the underlying reason for buying. Okay. Like what's the real objection. It, they might say, Hey, I need to think it over with somebody else. That's that pro is probably not anywhere close to what they're actually thinking inside their head for like the real objection. Sure. Um, it might be like timing related. It might be like, I don't know, like I have three other options that are 14 and you're showing me 27. Sure. I don't sure. trust you. Things like that kind of pop into play. So, um, I guess like certain questions that we would ask or, uh, I'm trying to think real quick. So I want to give you specific examples sure. of things that I know that have worked. Um, I mean, we usually just start off by kind of like asking like, how, like have they ever done this experience before? Um, like with a painting contractor? Yes. No, it doesn't really matter. Um, we explain with how we structure it. And uh, usually from there uh, you can kind of like, toss around the whole landscape. Like we can give like different options that are like more high end. We can do like price itemization. Um, we give like, like once you have the range laid out of like <clears throat> low versus mid versus high grade options and that you do have the option to choose where you want to be. Um, you can ask them like, what makes more sense to tailor our conversation towards today? Are you looking to be more towards like 700 per room or 2000 per room? And painting a picture on like, what that looks like and what we actually do to get it to that point. Um, so that's a direct question. If they're like maybe in the middle, like you can kind of like indirectly get like a sense for like how much money they're willing to spend based off the room counts and their goal. Um, asking them like, does it make more sense to itemize every single thing here? Or do you want to just get it all done now? Do one option here? Because like, again, this range can be like, I can, I can show you something like this within like a $5,000 range or a $35,000 range. <laughs> where, 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 where do you want to be with that? And, um, questions like that, that are more direct. Like we, we just started talking more about money, budgeting goals, trust factors, what's important to them. Are you doing it in phases? And once you have like that underlying goal, uh, understood at least a little bit better, 
whatever their objections pop out at that point, you handle them and address them. If they say like, Hey, like I'm not, or what is it? Oh yeah. I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that, but like, <laughs> nonetheless, at the very end, you want to kind of like ask questions like that and get to the very end and say, or have them not really have any chance to like give an objection on like why they can or can't do something. If, uh, if they say it's like a, uh, a little bit more money than they're used to spending, or like they can't spend until they talk to this person. Um, there's like a grocery example you can use. So like, you know, do you do the grocery shopping in your house? Things like that. Okay. Um, if you do, how often do you do it twice a month? How much do you spend per month or per shot per trip? 400, 400 per trip. That's 800 a month times 12 is what? 7,000 something. So like if that person spends seven grand a year without consulting their other partner, do you need to really consult them for on a $4,000 purchase right here? Something that's going to last you 10 years. Like, I don't know. There's, there's different ways you can kind of like dive into it, but sure. we found that there's a different layer to like, just like the sales game to make them feel more comfortable to saying, yeah. Sure. So you, yeah, this is gold, Brian. So this is really gold. Uh, one of the things, well, actually, I, I want to ask a question right there. Do you guys try to close on the spot or or not? Yep. So we never did. But like after we increased, we had to. So we asked twice at least on every single consult. Sometimes we ask like three times or four times. But like the tricks to be able to do that in a way that you, you feel comfortable as a, as a project consultant and not coming off as pushy. And doing it in a way, like, you don't have to ask all times at the very end. You can ask, like, literally the first 10 minutes of your conversation, do you plan on making decisions today? Just ask a direct question like that. That's one time. And, like, throughout the entire presentation portion, you might be able to ask them, like, softly four times. At the end, two times pretty hard and direct. <laughs> and, you know, just toss down some challenges and just, like, be like, I don't know. Like, you, you're, you're peeling back the layers of, like, their defense mechanisms. And once you just understand just what they value as a person, it's not a weird or uncomfortable conversation, I guess. Yeah. So I think, I mean, we're, uh, you know, painter marketing pros works with, with painting companies around the country on, on how to market and sell effectively. And some of the stuff you're saying is really counterintuitive, especially for uh, people who aren't really used to sales or don't have a sales background. But this idea of uncovering objections and, and really almost fishing for the no, you know, everyone wants to hear the yes. Oh, oh does this seem good? Yes. Do, do you want to do this? Yes. You know, this, this kind of silly idea that if they just keep saying yes all the time, uh, then they'll, they'll accidentally or their brain will just be programmed to just say yes to the sale because they're already on this yes track. Uh, but the reality is a lot of times there's, they don't, you know, people are conflict diverse. You know, they don't want to tell you um, well, your price is too high because what they're really telling you is either they don't have the budget, in which case you probably didn't do a good job qualifying your lead. Uh, and you need to revive, you need to figure out where you're getting your leads from and, and what your pre-qualification process looks like. Cause otherwise you're going to waste a lot of time. Uh, or they don't see you as worth it. You haven't demonstrated the value. And like you said, the trust, they don't trust you. You're coming in at 20, 27, the other people are at 14 and they don't see you as 13,000 more. They see you as someone who's potentially trying to rip them off. Is that kind of how you're, how you're thinking about this? Um, yeah, I would say it's pretty accurate. And I think, 
I, this might be an easier way to look at it. What we don't want to do is present them a price blindly. Before we actually present them an option, we know exactly what they're going to say yes to. Okay. You know what I mean? From so starting, like that, from kind of getting that baseline right when you start. Yes. And like that, that can be done on an initial phone call. That can be done with your pre-positioning uh, info, just articulating and being transparent with their pricing option range. That could be done like during the first 10 minutes of your sit down. You know, you can do certain things like that, but like whenever we were presenting price blindly and just crossing our fingers and showing them a price of 35 K it's like pulling teeth to get them to say anything after they see the price, but like getting them to open up and feel comfortable with you before you do that, you'll know it makes no sense to show them a number that like that <laughs> show them like seven or eight different options and like present it in a way where like, it looks like they're price shopping but they're doing it with you. They don't have to talk to five other people. If you're showing them a range of like $10,000 variance and what we can actually offer, um, there's tons of negotiating power there and leverage. Yeah. So like, it just comes down to like, do they trust you? Do they like you? And like, I, I know we all hear that general cliche thing, but like there's more truth to that, I guess. If you have enough conviction in your voice and you're like, you genuinely believe it, like you're like the best option for them. Yeah. Because like, you know, that you, you put so much time and attention and energy and effort to making the back end work, which is extremely difficult for anybody who's trying to do it. Right. So yeah, the, the, I mean, you're, you're basically talking about value-based selling versus cost-based selling. And I used to read, um, goosebumps when I was little, it was kind of scary little book series or whatever. And, and they came out with, they started coming out with this choose your own adventure kind of deal you know, and how do you end up dying or whatever in the book? Because do you open the door? Do you not open the door? Do you do this or that? And then skip to the different pages. And that's kind of what you're doing. You're, you're sort of giving, you're letting people almost build their own estimate. And, and therefore in the process, you're probably gaining that trust. And when they get there, it's not, I mean, they chose to open the door. They chose to do this. They chose to do that. And they still have the ability to make other decisions. unlike the, the goosebumps book where you're dead, but they feel more in control in their driver's seat. How, it, do you feel like it's that mentality of, of being in the driver's seat? Is that giving them more trust? Um, yeah, I would think so because, you know, compared to yourself, like if you go to a store and like, like if you're buying something and, and you're looking to spend a lot of money, like say it's like a mattress or something like that, they can be a couple thousand dollars. Like you want to go in there and feel like you're, the, you're making the decision. You have high certainty in yourself of making the right decision you don't want somebody to kind of push into something that like you didn't think you were going to even be focused on at one point, unless they just like open up your eyes and kind of just like lay it out on the table. So yeah, just having the conviction and certainty in oneself, I think you have to f figure out how to get them to that point for them. Do you have any recommendations for how someone could get better at this? Or if they don't have that certainty, if they don't have that sales background, that kind of almost X factor, what, what you're talking about here, what can they do to try to get it? Um, honestly, I would just say <laughs> you almost have to just like, it's a to be really good at it and yeah. just follow. Cause like, it's, it's nothing that we're making up. Like everybody knows, like, I feel like people know they should, probably should be doing this or asking this at this point. Um, I was guilty of it. Like, I don't, my nature as a person, I don't like being more assertive like that. Yeah. It's not comfortable, but like there's things you can do on a daily basis that like makes it more second nature. So it doesn't feel like you're changing yourself. 
So I would, I would boil it down to just find somebody who's doing it that you think is good at it, get feedback or like coaching or mentorship from them, or just like physically go out to them and just like see what they're doing. And then on a daily basis, you have to like train yourself. Like if you're not going to sit there with somebody on your team and like do role playing every day and just like get used to like saying things to like customers who might say things to you, then you're never going to get to the point of it being second nature. Cause whenever you're in the house, you're, you might know what to say, but you might lock up and not say it. Sure. So this idea of role-playing sales of, of you and someone else on your team, or, if, you know, let's say you're listening and you're a solopreneur, then you and a friend or family member and, and you have them, you, maybe even if they're not in the painting industry, again, kind of, if you are a solopreneur can maybe even give them objections or give them what you think are objections and, and have them kind of push you as a customer. Mm-hmm. And you practice that sales pitch in, well, in a safe environment, so to speak. Even if you're a solopreneur, um, you can get a small journal. You can go on your consultations. Every time you hear an objection, write it down. Mm. Okay. And then whenever you go home, record yourself on video of just saying the objection. And then you can sit in front of a screen with yourself, play it, pause it, and then handle the objection of what you said. So there's no excuse to not really have a way to practice it is what I'm trying to say. And that's cool. Yeah. You're, you're role-playing with yourself video of yourself. And the second we started doing that on a daily basis, it got so much easier. Like the guy that we taught uh, for sales this year, he just had a 20 K day yesterday. Wow. Completely new, uh, never even sold anything in his entire life. And he's just, he's very, very comfortable just like kind of getting right to the point and just like not being afraid to ask certain things, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, sales is, is uncomfortable for most people. But this, I think this idea that the way you guys have structured it, where you kind of let them almost take the lead, you give them options, but say, Hey, how are you thinking about this project? Um, makes it so you're not going through and, and thinking, man, they're going to probably have a stroke when I, when I present them the price, because I'm not sure we're aligned here. You're kind of, you're almost sort of micro selling or making sure you guys are, are synced up throughout the process. So there's not a huge disconnect. And there's like, what, you know, when you actually present that final price. Exactly. And every time you hear an objection that you can't handle and you write it down, um, it's not just the role playing. You have to dissect what you just did on that experience. And like, you need to add something prematurely at the beginning of that process to handle that before that even comes up. Nice. So kind of get, get uh, proactively kind of searching for those no's or those objections and unrooting them because just because you don't hear a no or somebody doesn't tell you that your price is too expensive, what's going to happen is you're going to feel good. They'll say, Oh, I need to talk to X, Y, or Z. And you're just not going to get the job. Yes. And it's going to sound really weird, but hearing a no is a form of a yes. So like everybody's looking to spend money. Everybody's looking to buy something. If they say no, it might be no for that, but like, they're not saying no. Yeah. And there was a, I think that's a really good point. And there was a, it's actually a book I read. I think it, I think it is, it might be never split the difference. I don't know. It is one of these books. I think it is actually never split the difference, but it it talks about getting to know, um, or it might've been pitch anything, but it was a sales book talks about getting to know. And I talked about how people's default, their safety net is no. And, and when you think about what you do with your kids, it's no. And I started thinking about it and people will automatically default to no, because that's sort of the safety. I'm going to, th- I need to think about this for a second. I'm not comfortable with it right now. And so the word no will come out. And I realized I do it all the time with my five-year-old. So he's daddy, can I know? And then I sort of process, I was like, Okay. Yeah, you can do that. But the default of no 
means I didn't just commit to something that that would be a mistake. And then I have to tell my five year old, oh yeah, I said you could do it, but now I just changed my mind. Uh, it kind of buys me time, I guess, in a way. And I think that that people do that all the time. And it's not something, you know, we, we think we hear no, and it means no. Or you hear no, and it just means either they need to process it, or maybe you, you didn't position it quite right, or, or maybe you're not quite offering what they're looking for. Like you said, they, the kind of is it $700 a room or, or $2,000 a room. What, what are they trying to accomplish with their house? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I kind of said it better myself. It's, you got this dialed in, Brian. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, fortunately we do. But like, again, like bringing it back to like the original conversation, there, there's a whole other animal layer that we're dealing with too, that like we're generally not good at. <laughs> so we're trying to figure out ways to get as specific as we are with the sales game, with the operational game. Do you guys have any sort of disqualification process or if you go in, and, and I assume it might start on the phone, um, but I'd love to hear about the whole process. But if you go in and you say, hey, you know, you're trying to get the range of the 700 to 2000 and, and it looks like their range is 400 and this isn't really going to make sense. How do, how do you guys have, uh, what's your disqualification process look like? Um, so it's, well, one, there's job type. If it's something small, we don't go out there. Uh, we'll do it virtually. You have, like you have kind of a minimum, a minimum um, job size where you'll go out and conduct an estimate? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's gotta be like at least like 3000 to go out there. Okay. Um, we have ways to kind of just like pinpoint that, but if it's lower, uh, we'll just say, just send pictures to this person's number. We'll give you a virtual quote, uh, within 24 hours. So you don't tell people that you have a minimum $3,000 job size. You have a process of figuring out what the job's likely to be. Correct. Okay. What does that process look like? Um, I mean, like we, we just kind of dissected our data and got like a price per bedroom. So like price per bedroom on average, 1500 give or take could be 2000, could be like 1200. Um, so like, that's an example of just like on the initial call script paper bedroom, this much money. Um, if they say they have just like wallpaper removal and that's it, or if it's like just a exterior wrought iron railing, that's like 12 feet long. No, like we're not, I'm not going to do that. It's, it comes down to training and kind of getting like really rough ranges. Um, and like, we have like a list of like too small with like bullet points below it. Um, so just look out for these general categories here. And then on the initial call, they just scab specific questions that they ask to like uncover that. Mm-hmm. So if they say like interior painting, okay, how many rooms? Okay. Is it just these surfaces or is it all of these? Do you have any preference on like the range uh, how we kind of talked before, mm-hmm. like there's a huge spread here. What are you looking for? Things like that. You can kind of uncover pretty quickly. And so you um, guys have a, a script that you use when you're on the phone. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So you have the, you have, it sounds like you have extremely dialed in SOPs in terms of your sales process. Yes, exactly. And that, that's where these, the sales confidence comes into play. Um, and like with, with that script too, like we know, like if they're on the lower end of that range and they're, they're not going to spend anywhere close to $2,000 for a bedroom, uh, we just say, okay, well, it's, it's probably not a right fit. No hard feelings. Um, if you're looking for an option within this realm, probably go for somebody who looks like this, like for describing a company structure or type, or even just like a competitor or something like that. Well, you refer them sometimes to competitors all the time. Yeah. And so you, you'll be just candid that, Hey, this you won't say oh, we're booked out for this long or you won't try to kind of blow them off. You'll just say, Hey, this isn't a fit for us. Yep. Um, every, every time I don't 
operate with truth and transparency, it feels weird. Yeah. So like, that's just a, a personal nature choice, but I'm um, very, very transparent because like we never yeah. say it in a jerk way. Right. For sure. Yeah. Not, not in, in some kind of condescending way. Your job's too small. Just it, Hey, I think this coming. And I think if you add value and you actually recommend them to a company that, you know, does quality work and would, would like the job, then you're still adding value to them. You know, you're not leaving them high and dry. Yeah. Hey, you guys aren't worth our time. Bye. Yeah. And I do want to note, we do accept small jobs. If we don't go out there and we do it virtually, we'll do it small as long as it's at our rate. Mm. Because like the lifetime value of that customer, um, that's more important to us than having an inefficiency for one day for one painter. Lifetime value of the customer. So what do you guys, did you have any, anything, any sort of process for getting repeat business? Any, you know, database reactivation would be the ridiculously complicated marketing term, but whether you're reaching out by email or sending birthday letter, do you guys do anything like that? Um, to be, uh, to be honest, Brandon, uh, we don't do enough of that. So, um, and you, you, so, you eat what you kill, man. You go out there, you're, you're hunting fresh meat every day. You, you got a, you got a cooler full of meat over here, but you don't, you don't want it. <laughs> I know and it sounds crazy to like admit that, but like, that's, that's something that we genuinely need to execute more because like there, there's so much you can do with that like so much creativity, so much touch points. And, um, uh, that's another layer that like we're, 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 we're empowering our sales staff to be able to like have their integrated, like methods of doing that. And, um, not just putting it all on kind of like the back end office person to do that. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just a restructuring thing, but sure. he, like, we're definitely losing a lot of money not doing that. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. you, you know, you recognize it. And I think what's, what I love about this, episode. Well, first off, it's a, it's a really deep dive into sales, what like a deep dive, uh, into, into actual strategies and psychology. And that's amazing. But also you came on this, this podcast a long time ago and it, I mean, things are good for you. So, you know, don't take this the wrong way, but it's, it's, this is a real episode, you know, you came on and it was, well, I, I blew up and I just sales oriented and rainbows and unicorns, and you just have to be sales oriented. And now you're coming back on and it's, well, Hey, you know, we've hit some bumps and and that's okay. You know, we're pivoting not, a, and not every employee has remained a fit and that's okay. But this is entrepreneurship. This is business growth. And it's for, for everyone listening, it's never perfect. It, it is the struggle, you know, for better, or for worse, the struggle is going to somewhat continue. Uh, and that's okay. And I want to, Brian, you were talking about something before we started about this idea of, I kind of view it as a video game, but I want you to, you to talk about how you view it as you, you're always kind of outside your comfort zone. And you're always finding this, this point of, oh boy, what do I do now? Let's talk about that. Yeah. So, um, it's, I think everything reflects from you as an owner. So like, I mean, I don't know if it's just like a personal choice or like my nature, but, um, there's obviously going to be, be people out there that like have a really sweet spot for comfortability and they just want to kind of like stay there. Perfect. Lifestyle fine. business type. Type, yeah. It? Yeah. I mean, you, you could be bringing home 200 K and like have like a team of people that just like love painting and just like, mm. you know, like that's, that's awesome actually. Mm. So <laughs> it's, it, it's not so bad. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. So, so like, it all depends on that kind of like underlying goal, but like, um, there's different layers to what we figured out that we come into. So like, I'm, I'm going to compare it to like the book, the J curve. Um, there's always like a little dip right below where like, the break even is. So like, it's like you kind of like eating dirt for a while. Um, that's learning a new skill that you're uncomfortable with. That's the whole point of entrepreneurship and starting a company. 
Um, the whole goal is to get past that and then just like get it to a point where there's traction and you have people around you that can help you bring that higher quicker. So um, once, once we reach personally at a peak where we're like, wow, this is awesome. Like I'm not stressed. I'm like physically, like don't even need to be doing anything for the next like 10 hours, 15 hours. Um, but we're outputting more work than we have ever been. Um, it's awesome to stay there, but like, I don't know, like we just can't kind of keep ourselves to, uh, coast like that. Um, I think it's kind of dangerous, at least for like how I am and how I operate. But like, we're attracting people that have that similar mindset. So like if the team is specifically, if we're trying to attract people that don't like to do that either, we owe it to them to like always be doing something different to like have them grow. Um, but like if we were, if we had the goal as an owner to like, just like get to a point in coast and like have people that paint and just paint forever, um, and stay at like a certain point that employees, uh, growth pattern does matter too, because like, you don't, you, you don't feel obligated to like do more for them. So I think that's where it kind of comes into, uh, is just your obligation to like, like you owe it to your team to like push them out of their comfort zone and make them grow, which ultimately makes you grow. And the only way to do that with the growth is to just do something that you really not good at. And again, for me, operations, for me, it's working with people. For me, it's like doing cultural based activities and stuff like that. Like Brandon, I, I could be from my laptop for like literally 14 days straight and be happy as a clam, not talk to a soul. Yeah. But like I push myself out of my comfort zone daily to like try and be okay conversing and learning more of the emotional IQ stuff and like, that other layer that does matter as you get to a certain point. But, uh, that J curve reference, that's like one snapshot. You just do that, complete it. And then you start a new J curve <laughs> and you just do that and come to terms of doing that forever. And I think that's kind of like the mindset that helped us, uh, adopt that, I guess. Yeah, man, that's great. What a great analogy. You, you guys just, you love the taste of dirt, you know, you, you gotta, gotta have it. Um, but this idea of being comfortable, being uncomfortable, you know, and, and what is, what do you want out of your business? And if you are, if you're attracting people who want growth, who want, who want to, you know, transformation, who are driven by that. And that's kind of how you're marketing your company. You better offer it. You know, you better be willing to, to, to level up, level up your skill set, get outside your comfort zone. Cause otherwise those people are going to leave or they're going to become, you know, um, not happy at your company. Now, if you're running a lifestyle business and you just have painters and, and they want consistency and stability only, um, you know, then that's a different story. But, but I like how you, you incorporated the entire, basically corporate culture into that, you know, what that looks like for your employees. Yeah. At least we're, we're trying to build that more strongly. Um, yeah. I mean, like we're, again, we're not perfect with that, but like, it's, it's definitely something that is very intentional. And like the people that share that same dynamic that, uh, has an underlying goal and like perspective with yourself. It just makes it so much of an easier, harmonious thing, which makes it kind of cool. Yeah. That's great, man. Yeah. So, so you had kind of shifting gears a tiny bit. You had mentioned, um, if, if your close rate drops, then you just need to get more leads and, and make sure you can qualify leads. How are you guys getting the majority of your business right now? Um, so it is, well, there's been some like effort put into like the SEO game, um, the, uh, advertising obviously is always there. Uh, the repeat and referral, uh, we have been actively working on that, even though we're not like yeah, utilizing all potential of that. So yeah, I would say the repeat and referral is probably 15%. 
Mm -hmm. Advertising is still pretty heavy right now. And then um, commercial repeat is a thing. So like that's a, that's Mm -hmm. a certain percentage. Uh, We're trying to like just expand the repeat and referral market, I guess. Sure. And get our ad spend down. But uh, we're also experimenting kind of like having the ads always being there as an avenue, but like putting a lot more money into the long-term growth of the brand. Mm. So I think that's going to like have a huge ROI down the road. With the ads, have you found that Google ads, Facebook ads, TikTok, what have you found to be the most successful? Um, I mean, it's for now, it's still Facebook and Google. Mm. Um, it's not as like appealing as it was like a while ago, but like it still works. So that comes back into the whole sales thing too. So like, uh, that's where we're experimenting with like, where is that seesaw actually going to like stay? And again, we've been, we've just been able to outsell our problems usually, which is a good thing and a bad thing. Apple kind of, kind of made Facebook (laughs) a little trickier there with their privacy. They're, they're not tracking update there. Yeah, uh, it is what it is, I guess. That's, it's, that's the J curve, man. Game. Be, be comfortable being uncomfortable. But yeah, if it's hard for you, it's hard for everybody else. So it's actually not any harder for you, really, when you think about it. It's just the whole, the whole competitive landscape just shifted a bit. Yeah, which um, also, uh, we went to a home show recently. Um, we, get, we had decent success with that. Nice. Um, never really been to a home show that was like at that scale. But we scheduled like 103 consults from that alone. That's great. Um, so, so that's another avenue. But uh, yeah, I don't know. We're just trying to do it. Be unique, be different. And I love that you do marketing too. <laughs> Cause like you, you know, all the avenues that go into it. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in your opinion, Brandon, what's like spending money on somebody for like being a full-time content creator or like being able to post on all platforms daily and increasing the organic and stuff like that. Do you think that's a huge importance to like actually think of spending money on overhead over the next couple of years on that for companies. Like if, you were, if you were hiring a person at say 45 grand or something a, a year to, to basically be your social media person. Yeah. Because I could be wrong. Tell me if I'm wrong. I think that that increases a lot of the actual like lead flow, like being more active on everything and kind of increasing your like, I guess, presence everywhere. Yeah, it can. I, you know, I would, the only thing I would caution, I guess, is don't mistake activity for achievement. So it's a John Wooden quote. If you're going to do that, make sure that you have, you have a really strong, like you said, you're, you're investing money into your brand. Make sure you have a strong brand. I think that starts with values of, of your company and that you're portraying those values. Also for anyone listening, you know, I'm sure you're not doing this, but make sure it's not spammy or overly promotional. There's a 80, 20 rule. So over 80% of your posts should really be informational. They should be interesting. They should be value add and less than 20% of them should be any kind of, you know, call us now or, or whatnot. And, for faith, for painting companies, a lot of times it's, it's easy because you can put the before and afters. You can, you can put interesting tidbits about a job. You can kind of put neighborhoods um, and people want to, they want to, if you can show that you're doing their neighbor's house, or you can show that you're doing, doing people in their general areas house, they're going to trust you more. They're just naturally going to trust you more. So I think if you're doing social media, make sure you have, uh, if you're paying someone full time to do that, make sure that you have a really well-structured plan and objective and that you're putting out a consistent brand image don't just, well, I just need to post every day because that's going to magically generate a lot of business. It'll help you a little bit, but it's not going to magically generate a lot of business. Mm-hmm. So I guess, I guess, yes, I think it's worth it. If you have the capacity, if you don't, if you don't have 45 grand laying around, I wouldn't invest that. That wouldn't be the first thing I would do it would be higher social. You know, I would invest into um, SEO uh, if you're focused on long-term or Google ads, but someone who knows what they're doing, because otherwise you're going to burn a lot of money. 
Uh, and then, but if you actually have that capacity to invest in it, then yeah, it's good, but it would not be the first avenue I would use for growth. Gotcha. Yeah. That's always been a thought of mine. Like, um, over the next like five, 10 years, I think it might be like a requirement maybe <laughs> of just like having somebody who's intentionally like focused on that full time, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I can definitely differentiate, especially from a lot of the companies that are not doing it, but f- f- what we've seen is getting good solid before after photos of all your projects, make sure you're posting your Google business profile as well. Don't leave that. You know, people think you set that and forget it. Do not, um, because it's going to help your map pack rankings. And, and when Google sees that activity, make sure you're obviously spreading across all your platforms, Facebook and Instagram at a minimum. Um, but if you can do Pinterest, TikTok, LinkedIn, really wherever, um, you might as well. You, there are a lot of softwares that you can use to bulk post things. So you don't, the person should not be logging in, uh, and then posting manually to all these things, social pilot, Hootsuite, all these different things. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, ultimately it's, I guess it's about leveling up and, uh, being more present digitally than a lot of other companies in your service area. You know, people want to do business with, with companies that know, like, and trust. I think you actually, I brought up a Jack McGee. I ran a podcast with him and he, I think I, I mentioned something customers need to be touched seven times. And I think he said, you told him, um, which is probably correct that average customer needs to be touched 12 times before they make a decision. But either way you have to touch people a lot of times in some capacity. And I know you do the pre-sale and, and the post-sale and, and you guys have the, the dripping of messages, but people need to have some time getting to know you and seeing you and social media yeah. can help with that, that brand awareness. You don't want to be mm-hmm. a stranger trying to sell a $28,000 job when or 27,000, when your competitors are selling 14, you can't win that as a stranger. And I, I have a random comment to pepper in here too. <laughs> Yeah, that's sales related, but like that, that correlates into everything else too. Like you can't be a stranger to your team. You can't be a stranger to yeah. who you're recording. Like that, you it's the same ball game. Yeah. It's, it's the same exact ball game on all accounts, just in different like, uh, perspectives and word packages. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And, and this idea that employee is selling, you know, like this idea of having a hiring funnel and always having kind of people on deck to, to bring in to the team and then giving people a path like you constantly revisiting that uncomfortable J curve to give people the growth opportunities to show they're not sitting here stagnant at this business. This business is growing and they have the opportunity to grow and level up their skill set as they go. So it's all sales, you know, at the end of the day, it's all sales and marketing. You're, you're selling the customer uh, on the vision. You're selling the, on, on the jobs, you're selling the employees on the vision on, I'm wanting to work with you. Um, but yeah, I think that's a great point. Brian, do you have anything else that you want to, to share today? Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, yes. uh, no matter what cycle point you're at in your business, um, there's always a new thing and a new layer to add. So, um, even if you're like somebody who's very comfortable with like a certain target and like being there, um, there's still stuff you're going to have to kind of like, just like be uncomfortable, like learning and, and adapting to, cause like this industry and market is changing a little bit, you know, pretty quickly. So, um, I would just highly recommend and encourage everyone to just like be very accepting of your downfalls and your shortcomings and just what you're good at lean into it. Everybody's company is different. So like you can kind of like just make it around what you want to do and you can probably be really good at it. How is the market changing as a quick follow-up to that? So um, it's the standards are just becoming a lot more high and intentional and um, the digital landscape is a whole on, uh, another layer on top of that. And um, just like the external factors of the people coming into your organization 
there's a lot of influencing factors um, that's happening in our world and, and economy that's influencing like what they value is important, what they're, uh, you know, like how much you're making, what they want to do. Do they value going on like more interactive stuff with you and your company? Um, tons of, tons of different layers. And like, it's just the more people that come in at different age ranges and as they kind of like move up, the motivators will always be different and new. And if you don't change, uh, you're going to have a difficulty at some point with uh, an adaptive, you know, downfall. Yeah. Man, what great points. Be, be open and willing to change and grow if you want your business to grow. Always getting better or getting worse. You're not staying the same. Brian, thank you. Thank you for your time. This was incredible. Uh, I definitely want to have you back on the show again because you were, you're a rock star, man. Thanks for coming on. Sure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. If you want to learn more about the topics we discussed in this podcast and how you can use them to grow your painting business, visit paintermarketingpros.com forward slash podcast for free training, as well as the ability to schedule a personalized strategy session for your painting company. Again, that URL is paintermarketingpros.com forward slash podcast. Hey there, painting company owners. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Give us your feedback. Let us know how we did. And also, if you're interested in taking your painting business to the next level, make sure you visit the Painter Marketing Pros website at paintermarketingpros.com to learn more about our services. You can also reach out to me directly by emailing me at brandon at paintermarketingpros.com and I can give you personalized advice on growing your painting business. Until next time, keep growing. Paint Ed podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and is made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPaintEd.org.